following sermon is from Dr. Dan Kitnoya, pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Tilton, Illinois. If you've never reached out to Calvary before, we'd like to hear from you. Visit our website, calvarytilton.com. That's calvarytilton.com. And now, here's Dr. Dan. If you have your copy of the scriptures, join me if you would in Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I don't know how your week has gone, but on Monday I sat down in the study to begin to examine biblical texts that deal with the question of sexual morality. What does the Bible say about it? And as I collected texts that I considered and, and thought, how would I comment on this? I, I began to have a, sensa- a two-part sensation. Number one, I, I realized quickly how hard I was going to be swimming against the current of our culture. And I realized how the reality is that in the church world, if you don't realize you're swimming against the current, it's because you're floating along with it. And then I began to ask the question, where do I start? And in the context of his swirling thoughts, a news story comes into, into, my, into my ears about a clothing manufacturer named Balenciaga. And if you're not familiar with the story, I'm going to leave details out. But it involved a clothing manufacturer, which I had never heard of because I'm kind of like I shop at Walmart and Sam's Club these days. So I'd never heard of them. Uh, But they were using uh, child pornography, basically. Sexualized images of children to sell handbags. They'd actually done stuff like that before, but it seemed to go under the radar until this time it did not. And of course, as you would expect, I, I was glad to see certain folks that I typically look to would say, were outraged. And, but then what I began to notice was that there were many who were awfully silent. Who, if a bad tweet from ten years ago had shown up, would lost their minds. People should be fired. Businesses be shut down. Let us protest. But nothing out of certain segments of our culture. I am glad to report that by Friday there were little Instagram videos of women cutting up their the Balenciaga bags and setting them on fire. And I saw a guy who was like a guy who does a TV show on Hollywood, and he was calling out Hollywood for their hypocrisy. And I said, Amen. So I'm glad to say that by Friday, I can't believe it took till Friday, for the outrage. The outrage happens immediately in our culture. It took a week to decide that it was wrong for some folks. And and so as I wrestle with texts, here's how this week went for me. I I was outraged. And then I looked at it in the context of the first time I was aware that this stuff was happening was about 10 years ago. I I think I was walking through Target's. And I noticed a clothing item that I, in my simple mind, viewed as lingerie. And it was, lit, was located in the girls' clothing section. And I thought, who buys this for their eight-year-old daughter? And then I'm in a context where we have Drag Queen Story Hour. And probably the fact that I even said Drag Queen Story Hour probably makes Christians uncomfortable because you don't want me to mention it. 
Because I'm the bad guy for saying that it's wrong. But it is. And so that's the week. That was Monday. Thankfully by Friday, some people... See, I don't view unbelievers as inherently incapable of seeing some of this as wrong. And so here's where my brain got to. The series started with the idea of let's rebuild the foundation. We began with gender. Two of them. Not 115. Just two. Marriage. One man, one woman. Period. And now we are on to sexuality. What I began to recognize is this. While I'm grateful that people are outraged in Balenciaga rather than take responsibility, they're suing the company they hired to do their advertising campaign as though they as though nobody from their firm sold off, signed off on the thing. So lawsuits are happening, people are burning their stuff, that's great. But how long until it returns in a different form? Because the reality is this. We have a long time ago, I don't know when it began, but we abandoned the biblical foundation of morality. The reason that anybody at a major company thought it was okay to do this was that we have abandoned a long time ago the foundation. And so my simple world at, at this church where I serve, I was trying to rebuild the foundation. And the reality is you and I cannot look to unbelievers to build it for us. They do not know God. And so while they recognize that it was wrong, they don't really know why it's wrong. Because at some point we abandon principles in pursuit of passion and pleasure. That is now the guiding light of the culture we're trying to build. But as Christians, we look to Scripture. And we build a foundation upon the principles that God gave us. That's what the ancestors of our country did. Were they perfect men? Heavens no. But that was what they labored to establish. And so this morning, we're going to continue. We're going to look at... I asked the question, then where do I start? Well, there's no perfect place. They're all good places to start. We're going to start with 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 1 through 8. I'll make share with you a little context, and then we'll read. This new church, the Thessalonians, were coming from a culture that celebrated and supported and even expected sexual immorality to take place. Does any of that sound familiar to you? And so one of the difficulties with that church and probably all the churches from the Greco-Roman world was that they had to leave behind a viewpoint, a expectation that sexual sin was the norm, and they had to embrace something that God had said, which they had never heard before. And so this is a challenge for them. This book is awfully relevant for us. With that in mind, please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 1 through 8. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lusts like the Gentiles who do not know God, 
that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives His Holy Spirit to you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank You for the Bible and the Word of God. We thank You for our country. We pray that Your Spirit would move and minister in us. I pray that You would help us as Christians to not only regain a grasp and acceptance of the foundations of biblical morality, but that we would not only embrace them and understand them, but we'd be willing to live by them. Pray, Father, for our time together this morning that You would help me to deliver the truth here in a way that You would approve of. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. When the Balenciaga story came out, I wrestled with a lot of things. The things that are going on currently, and then I also remembered the place I used to work where I worked with teenage sex offenders. And none of those kids woke up one day and just said, I'm going to do this to somebody. It had been done to them. There was only one case that I know of in the two years I worked there where the therapist shared with me that he did not understand why a certain person was the way they were because their parents were good to them. They didn't understand. And so I understood that there's this sort of domino effect, that one person does this, and it began with grooming, and then another person's hurt, and then it just kind of spreads out from there. Lots of people got hurt. But the truth is, I'm not really, uh, I, that's sin, but that's like this big grandiose thing. But the reality is, we get there because the foundation is, has been abandoned. And it's not just the world out there. I stand up here this morning, and one of the things that burdened me heavily is I am fully aware that in the church world, amongst people that I used to trust and look to with respect, there is an effort ongoing to redefine terminology, not to please God, but to make sure the world doesn't look sideways at us because of our views. And I could probably go write a book on how we can interpret the Bible in a way that it's no longer authoritative on areas of sex, and it would get published. Or how, how do we approach a text? Well, when I, I'll just share with you. When I study the Bible, I have basically one goal in mind. To understand what God's Word says so that I can then preach it and live by it. We, you and I both, stand under its authority. When I see new books about how to interpret the Bible, I ask the question, is this author trying to help me stand under the authority of God's Word, or is he trying to help me become the authority over God's Word? And I promise you, somebody handed me a copy of a book just this week. The people are doing this. And you say, well, that's all nerd stuff. I hate to break it to you. The nerd stuff eventually makes its way down into your pulpits and your classrooms at school, by the way. It didn't start down here. It started up here, somewhere. 
And so I began then to go back to what was the point. The point is, while I want to get mad and I think it would be negligent of me to not talk about Balenciaga, the reality is we have to understand that this stuff begins when the moment we abandon God's principles. So let's look at them. First thing I want us to see is that God expects Christians to live to please Him, not the world. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so and more and more. In other words, keep growing. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. All right, so the Thessalonians were good Christians who were living for God but had room to grow. Does that sound familiar? This is a firm exhortation, a command really, to live to please God. God expects us to live lives that please Him. And as we will see, this includes the area of our sex lives. When God saves you, He redeemed you on purpose to live for His purposes. 1 Corinthians 6.20 You are bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body. That verse is sandwiched between Two sections of text that deal with sexual sin. And so undoubtedly, uh, glorifying God in our body has to do with, in part, how we function as sexual creatures. Christian, if Jesus is your Savior, He is also your Lord, and the Lord expects you to live to please Him. To live to please Him. Not, Not the world, not your flesh, not... Certainly not the devil. To live to please him. What I want you to catch also, when he kept saying there that the instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, (laughs) he's saying the authority for that comes from the Lord Jesus himself. Not me. See, when we disobey the word of God that's been taught to us, we're not disobeying our Sunday school teacher or our parents for that matter. The bottom line is we've disobeyed Jesus Christ. So we're called to be holy. God expects us to live to please Him. Not, not to earn salvation. Don't get that wrong. But for those, Christ died for you and me to redeem us, to buy us from slavery to sin, to live for Him. And that's what you've been brought into through faith in Christ. Second thing I want us to see is that God expects Christians to live lives that are set apart for Him. Verse 3, the first half. This is the will of God. Your sanctification. Now, the biblical understanding of sanctification is to be set apart to live for God. And it certainly includes sexuality, but it includes, well, just about just everywhere, every area of your life. Being dedicated to Him in our hearts, minds, attitudes, actions, and values. Everything. To be set apart for God. And one of the things that I've come to love about um, people in their late teens, early 20s, and probably 30s, early 30s now, so many Christians began to wonder what God's will is for their life. And they wanted to know, um, who should I marry? Where should I work? What kind of career should I pursue? Where, where, where should I live? And where should I go to college? Or should I go into the military? And those are all important questions. And to be frank with you, a lot of those answers are not given with certainty in the Bible for you. And so it is admirable when a Christian wants to know what God's will is for their life, what they should do. But whether you end up working as a teacher or an air traffic controller, a sales rep or a stay-at-home mom, 
God's will for your life is that you be set apart for Him. Living to please Him, the rest is just details. And so we're talking about holiness and uh, sanctification. I thought, how can I get this big, deep theological process across? And I came up with this. This is a spaghetti scoop. Slotted spoon kind of thing. You, you, you'll, we'll use it on Wednesday night. Did you know that this would probably function well as a cat box scoop? But you and I know full well that this has no business shoveling tiger's stuff. You would like it to be set apart for the spaghetti. That's sanctified. You and I are set apart to be used by God. Sure, we can most certainly get involved with vileness, but that is not what we were created for, and that is not why Christ saved you. You've been set apart to be holy, to live for Him. God expects us to be holy. There are many competitors to the will of God for your life. So this is the will of God for your life, sanctification. There's lots of competitors for that. Your own will. I want what I want. My parents' will, your parents' will, uh, your boyfriend's will, your girlfriend's will, your spouse's will, Hollywood's will your friends, and also the unbelieving world, which does not want you to please God. It does not. They're fine with you doing it at home. They'd prefer you didn't take it to the ballot box. But I got news for you. Being a follower of Christ, it doesn't stop when you leave the front door. The Thessalonians were feeling pulled by the unbelieving world to live in a way that pleases the world and the flesh. But the Thessalonians were not so different from us now, are they? We're living in a world not so different from theirs. Third thing I want us to see is that God expects Christians to be sexually pure. Look at verse 3 through 6. For this is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warn you. So as converts to Christ, living sexually pure lives was one of the greatest challenges of the early church. You see it in Corinth, you see it in Thessalonica, and that challenge, I'm sorry to say, has returned with a vengeance because our culture both tolerates and celebrates sexual sin. But Christian, we don't look to them to establish and confirm and approve and strengthen the foundation. Church, it begins with the household of God. We must embrace what God said. In this passage, we are called to deal with a specific area in need of sanctification. That is our sex lives. We are commanded to be sexually pure. I want you to get to this. Sanctification is a broad topic. And under that umbrella includes many things, including sexuality. But catch this. We are not to be living like the unbelieving world. 
In verse 4, there's a word that's translated vessel or body. And it refers to the body as a whole, but with a particular emphasis on one part of the body. In this case, anyway. The reproductive organs. This is a word that I studied out in, uh, in depth, and I generally am convinced that it probably was referring to the organs, the sexual organs, but the most common usage is the body. But I think it's specifically dealing with that because that's what he's talking about in the context. But we were created by God to be sexual creatures. But God expects us to have an honorable sex life, not a dishonorable one in which we are controlled by our passions and lusts the way someone is controlled by drugs and alcohol. As I wrote that line, I couldn't help but my mind go back to the old jukebox, the mental jukebox. And there was a song that few of you probably know. is by a group called Nine Inch Nails. You wouldn't have listened to them. It's called the, uh, the Perfect Drug. And here's how the song goes. And it really is a depiction of a mind so warped by lusts and passions. You are the perfect drug. Pull out the... Turn out the sun, pull the stars from the sky. The more I give to you, the more I die. And I want you. You are the perfect drug. Our world knows what it feels like to be controlled by passions and lusts. Some of them can get to the point where they know that it's ruining them, but won't abandon it. Paul, through the pen of Paul, God is saying, you can't live like them. When you see insanity taking place and we are bad guys for saying it's wrong, it's because people are no longer thinking clearly. Theological term, you ready? The noetic effect of sin. An old pastor named John Calvin kind of popularized the topic. It's not Noah as in Noah's flood. It's noetic from the Greek word gnosis, knowledge. And what he was saying is when people get so messed up with sin, it gets to the point where they don't think clearly anymore. And Paul says, God says through the pen of Paul, you can't live like that anymore. And we're going to talk a little bit more in depth about some of these things, but I'm going to warn you up front. The Bible has, paints a very vivid and real picture about human sexuality. I won't be gross, but I think I would be negligent as a pastor to not bring these things up because can I tell you one of the things as pastors we're often encouraged to do, you ready? To preach what's called felt needs sermons. I'm not against that. What it felt nobody feels the need to hear that they should stop sinning. Nobody feels the need to understand biblical principles of sex. And so if I am not doing that, I am failing you. So let's take a look. The Greek word porneia can be translated fornication, as the King James usually does, or sexual immorality. I almost, which some of you would have loved it if I did, I almost used the King James this morning. Because I really like the word fornication. It has bite to it. The fornicators. But the reason I didn't is because in modern English, fornication really just kind of means... Sexual sin, yes, but it's just sex outside of wedlock. But the Greek word porneia covers much more ground than that. And so we're going to kind of look at the ground, some of it anyway. I kind of got to where I said, where do you start and where do you stop? 
We got one sermon, so I'm going to be intentionally limiting. But the Greek word can be translated fornication or sexual immorality. It is a term that covers a multitude of sexual sins, and the Bible lists many types of sexual sin. So I'm going to start with one. Matthew 5, verse 27 to 28. And as I go along, you are probably going to see yourself mentioned somewhere in the Bible. Before I even get there, let me just say, knowing what the Bible says is sin is, is, is one thing. But I want you to understand, to know what sin is is necessary to even understand grace. See, if we're not sinners, we don't need grace. So let's dig into the text. Matthew 5, verse 27 to 28. This is Jesus himself speaking. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Deuteronomy 5. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. And and so I wanted to catch this. First off, Jesus is affirming the Old Testament principle. But he's saying, look, you guys think you're great because you didn't do that? Well, guess what? You, I know that you men have looked at women for the purpose of lusting after them. You've committed adultery in your heart. So we see two sins. Number one, don't lust. Number two, don't commit adultery. One of the things that I started to hear coming out recently was people were lambasting the church because all you preach about is homosexuality. And I'm like, what world did you grow up in? Because I can tell you I heard countless sermons around 2000 to 2010 about, about lust and pornography. And I have preached to teenagers about sexual morality. It just so happens that now it's talked about constantly, so it's addressed much more frequently. But I grew up in a church that I heard about holiness in every area, including sexuality. They weren't talking about homosexuality that much because nobody was telling us it was good. Follow? So there's one of them. Number two. Oh yeah, 1 Thessalonians 4, 6, the Apostle Paul probably touches on it where it talks about if you defraud your brother in this matter. Here's kind of a little cultural background. The Thessalonian culture, it was sort of expected that men, they would have their wife and then a lady on the side. It was expected almost, yeah, it was expected. However, it was frowned upon to have your lady on the side be somebody else's wife. Okay? That could be sort of the backdrop. It could also be the biblical concept from the Old Testament. Um, that if, and I kind of favor this one, but it, I, it, the jury's out. In the Old Testament, when you slept with a girl who was not your wife, and you were a, both of which were single, the man was expected to marry uh, the girl and was supposed to give a what they call a bride price. That's like a dowry to the, husband, to the father. And so to sleep with a girl and not, not go marry her and give the dowry, well, that was an offense. That was a legal matter in the Old Testament. So it could be that. It could be the adultery thing. I, I don't know for sure. No one answered the question satisfactorily, in my opinion, so I'm giving you both options. I lean towards the second involving uh, a, daughter having, a da- girl having sex with a man that she's not married to and the man is expected to marry her. Leviticus 18.22, homosexuality. A man shall not lay with a, a man as he would with a woman, and a woman should not lay with a woman as she would with a man. It is an abomination. Let's continue. We have adultery, lust, homosexuality, um, fornication. 
that's uh, sex between basically two people who are not married. That is a sin. I've heard countless sermons preached on that. When a youth pastor preaches against that, that's when he tells teenagers not to have sex with people that are not your spouse, which none of them were married, well, they're talking about fornication. They just didn't use the word because it's not commonly used in our English anymore. Bestiality. Leviticus 18.23, You shall not lie with any animal, and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is perversion. And some of you say, boy, you're being selective, so why in the world are you including that? I thought about not, but here's why. Currently, everyone in our culture knows that that's no-no. Like, everyone gets that. Most people. And some of you probably wonder, does anybody still do that? I worked with sex offenders. I assure you it still happens. What has changed, You maybe you'd say, well, that's a psych hospital. But can I tell you something? There are things that our culture now celebrates that 20 years ago were considered, well, we'd get you put in a mental institution or at the very least go through counseling that we now applaud. Because we have abandoned the foundation. It includes all of that stuff. It also includes incest, which I'm not going to deal with, but it's in the Bible. Don't do it. And, and so we have this long list, and I don't want to go any further with it. There's a lot to be covered. The question then becomes, can God redeem someone who is mired in sexual sin? And I say yes, but there are some people who say yes, but well, sort of. So let's take a look. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? What do you mean by unrighteous? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Catch this. And such were some of you. Well, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Such were some of you. What, that, what does that mean? It means there were people who were living those lifestyles who have abandoned that because they're following Christ. Does God still do this? Well, I hate to tell you this world says no, and there's more and more people in the church who said no, God can't change people anymore. If you have time, Google, do a YouTube search. For Rosario Butterfield's testimony. She is a strong Christian woman, pastor's wife, who used to be living a lesbian lifestyle. Other things to consider. Why am I burdened? Why am I burdened? I've been burdened this week. I'm aware that there are conferences and churches that are starting to change language. We, they don't like the idea that we should say that we used to be those things. And I'm going to give you one example. One of my, uh, I had a good friend, uh, still a good friend. He uh, struggles with what's called unwanted same-sex attractions. But he is a strong Christian man. The movement has become, no, we should call ourselves gay Christians. There is a world of difference between saying, I have an unwanted same-sex attraction and versus saying, I am a gay Christian. 
You say, what's the difference? Are you nitpicking about words? I'm not. When you get saved, you are a child of God. Sanctified. Justified. Redeemed. I don't go around saying, I'm a lusty Christian. You would think I was losing my mind. I'm a... I sleep or I don't, but... I'm a Christian who sleeps around and this is normal. This is my identity. You would think I was nuts. I don't even want to start with bestiality. I am burdened this week. Because when I started to look at this, I realized I am swimming upstream. And I'm burdened because so many Christians are just going with the current. We cannot do that. But you cannot look to unbelievers who don't know God to build up and defend our foundation for us. Granted, we're one church. I'm encouraged that as I had a conversation with another pastor, he said, oh, uh, me and four other pastors are preaching the same topic at the same time that you are. I was encouraged. Because so much of what I hear is people just going with the current. Church, we can't be that. What I want you to get to before I move from 1 Corinthians, God can redeem someone who is mired in sexual sin. Being told that you've sinned is not the death sentence. You have to know you are lost before you can be found. And as a Christian, you can't know, that you, you can't know what growth looks like until you realize where you're weak. This is one of those areas, one of many. Beloved, we must avoid sexual sin because it defiles us. And before I move on, I want to share this. I heard this quote. I never heard the quote directly, so it was a friend quoting it to me. And it was from Adrian Rogers, and he was actually preaching about divorce, but I think the illustration applies well to both divorce and sexual sin. You ready? I call it grace at the bottom. He described getting a divorce as like falling off of a wall which then left you broken and bandaged and crushed. He said, that is true, but I want you to know that there's grace and healing at the bottom. See, when we talk about sin, it isn't to tell you, that there, there's no hope for you. Well, there is no hope without Christ. And because there is Christ, there is grace and healing at the bottom. So when as we went through those things of sin, you, you, heard, you heard your specific one. Hey, I heard myself listed. At the bottom of the wall is grace and healing. But so long as we are content to say that well, we don't need to be changed, we don't need to be transformed, we never will be. We never will be. There's a verse in the New Testament, I believe it's in 1 Timothy. Paul describes what I believe is churches who have a form of godliness but denying its power. When someone tells me that, that God doesn't really change sinners after they get saved, I think you're denying the power of the gospel. Because granted, I have different sins than some, but I can tell you God's been changing me for a long time. And some of you can say the same thing. Church, we don't do anybody a service by lying to them about what sin is. 
Let's continue. The Bible portrays human sexuality and sexual sin in a very vivid and accurate light. Sometimes uncomfortably so. Now, if you're uncomfortable, imagine having to stand up here and do this. Sin should make us uncomfortable. Especially when we ourselves are entangled in it. God expects Christians to obey Him. Verse 7 and 8. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives the Holy Spirit to you. The Holy Spirit does a lot of things, but uh, two things I want to mention. Number one, uh, He leads you into holiness. Number two, He helps you get there. The call of God into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ was not a call to live in sexual immorality or sinfulness of any kind. It is a call to live holy lives for God. God's will for human sexuality, then, is very simple. Hebrews 13.4 gives us that very short summary statement. Let's take a look. Hebrews 13.4 Let marriage be held in high honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Now here's the thing. When you th- if you see yourself and I'm like, I am listed in that sexually, immo- sexually immoral thing. You could let the judgment of God fall on you or be grateful for the fact that it fell on Christ on your behalf. That's what salvation is. God has commanded you to be sexually pure. And when we see this idea of the marriage bed, boy, that was a, you say, why don't you just preach that verse? Well, there was a lot of ground to cover before we got here. The series went like this. Gender, male and female. There's just two. That's not an accident. Marriage, male and female. Not an accident. And then we have human sexuality that is pure. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8, and Hebrews 13, 4. God has commanded you to be sexually pure. And to disobey this command is not to disobey Pastor Dan or your parents. It is to disobey God because it is straight from Him. So what if we have sinned? Well, repentance. Same as it is if you cheated on your taxes. Same as if you stole something from your neighbor. You repent. But I want to talk briefly about true repentance True repentance is when your mind changes to align with God's will and your behaviors follow. Sometimes we stop sinning because we've lost the opportunity to sin for some reason. That is not the same as true repentance. True repentance is changing our minds to align with God and our behaviors follow. And so if we've fallen into sexual sin, the solution is the same as any other. Repent. And in turn, begin to follow God. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. About eight years ago, I was <laughs> asked to preach at a youth conference 
a special topic. I did a breakout session, actually. It was a pretty large youth conference in Missouri. I was asked to speak on, uh, well, pure sex. And um, I sort of began a little different, and I, I often wrestled even now because I've grown up. I still wonder if I should have done this, but I, here's how I started the talk. I went up, and it was a packed house, by the way. <laughs> uh, my group was full. All the kids wanted to hear about it. And I, I began, I said, well, kids, my, 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 my task this, this afternoon is to, to preach on it, to talk about my, one of my favorite things, sex. And they all look at me like, a football player, like. And then here's how I followed it up. And I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm stealing this illustration from somebody else, but I said, God wants you to have, this is how I said it, smoking hot sex. I said, but sex is like fire. When it's in the fireplace, it's the right context. The marriage bed is the right context. When it gets out of the fireplace, onto the carpet, it's not long until you're burning the whole house down. Could I just suggest to you that we're watching this take place as the world burns down around us? But the fact is, rather, we, we, it's good to take a fire extinguisher to the world when we ha have the opportunity, but yeah, the church has kind of caught fire with this stuff. See, the reason I did it this way with the sex talk with the kids is I wanted them to understand that God is like, He doesn't want you to be like not happy with life. He created sex. It is good. But in the wrong context, it's like fire that got out of the fireplace. And I wrestled. I was, I was almost embarrassed. And I actually I contacted my friend Tim, who's like this really smart Bible nerd guy who's like just really serious. I said, Tim, do you think I went too far with that? And he said, well, he said, that wasn't the worst part. I said, actually what happened was, okay, I want to tease preachers a little bit. They caught on to the fact that the kids liked the way I did it. So I let home. I just did my little thing and I went. Well, the preachers juiced it up and went and ran with it. So that's kind of what happened with it. And then about five, three months later, we were, Chrissy and I were at um, that church, put on a fall festival, a very large church in Missouri, and I ran into a parent. We were talking. I didn't know them. We were just talking, and, and how it came up, I don't know, but uh, it came up that I was the guy that gave the sex talk at the conference. And her kid was at the conference. And I thought, oh man, here it comes. Here's what she said to me. My son came home so excited. Because she's like, he said, I'm like, I'm going to like quote it. Mom, you won't believe it. God made sex and wants us to have really great sex just when we're married. And that was the end of it. He, she was excited because he was excited and he got it. Church. God's not like anti-sex. What I want, He wants you to understand is sex needs to be pure and holy. And there's only one context for it. Marriage between one man and one woman. But maybe you've fallen off the wall. I got good news for you. There's grace at the bottom. God does put out fires. And that, beloved, is the good news. This Chad comes for our song of response. The truth is... Maybe as you heard the, the talk, you're like, okay, I, I, I get it. I, I've messed up there. 
Um, for the Christian, it's an opportunity to repent, change course. Uh, this isn't stuff that makes God no longer your, your, your love you and makes, doesn't make Him no longer your Savior. But these are areas where God wants us to get it right. Maybe this morning, whether it was sexual sin or just some other area of your life, you said, I know I've failed God in this and I know I need to be forgiven. The gospel is simple. It, 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 if we're not sinners, there's no need for the gospel. Every single one in this room is a sinner. That's why we come and sing praises to thank God for what He's done. This morning, if you've come to the place where you know that you've sinned, you've broken God's rules, and that has made you far from God's purpose for your life, far from Him, I would simply invite you, make your way to the front. I want to help you call on Jesus for salvation. He died on the cross to pay for your sins, yours and mine and everybody here. The Bible says it's not enough to just know that. He wants us to respond to that. And so I invite you this morning, call on the Lord Jesus for salvation. Please stand for our song of response. You've been listening to Dr. Dan Kitnoya, pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Tilton, Illinois. If you'd like to learn more, visit our website, calvarytilton.com. That's calvarytilton.com. Thank you for listening.